Okay, well, welcome back. Welcome back. My name is Kingsley. I'm one of the ministry directors here at Grace Toronto Church, wherever you are on your journey of faith. Welcome. We now come to the time of our service where we turn our attention to the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. Over the course of the past few weeks, we have been looking at some of the values that our church has, some things that make up the DNA of our church. We have looked at what it means to be a missional church, what it means to be a merciful church, and today we look at what it means to be a prayerful church. Our sermon today will be focusing on Nehemiah chapter 1. To give us a better context, though, we're going to be looking from Nehemiah chapter 1 to 2 verse 6, though. Okay, so it's going to be a pretty big text, but we're going to focus mostly at Nehemiah chapter 1. And so I encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along and to help us with the reading of God's Word. Gwen. Today's scripture reading is from Nehemiah 1 to 2 verse 6. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chisla, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king, in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Asterixes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. This is God's word. God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we ask you, after reading your word, to give us insight into the wonders of prayer and the value of prayer in our lives. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to perceive, 
And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. How have you been coping? How have you been coping with the stalemate conditions of COVID-19 in the last few years? Faced with feelings of loneliness, helplessness, anger, and grief, how have you been coping? In a survey conducted by Angus Reid Institute, data shows one in five Canadians are spending more time in prayer to cope with the conditions of life in lockdown. Astonishingly, not everyone who said they were praying identified as a person of faith. In fact, 14% 14 of those people identified as not particularly religious. Stuck at home and stuck with circumstances beyond our control, people are praying. Are you praying? When you pray, how do you feel? In the past, our culture typically viewed prayer as a bland formality, a a ritual performed by the unsophisticated, hyper-religious. Some people still feel this way. Others, however, are increasingly intrigued by prayer. As a means of discovering our authentic selves, our culture has become interested in spirituality, pursuing personal experiences with a higher power minus the religious part, many Canadians have begun to pray. Our culture calls this mindfulness. Maybe you've heard of it. Secular prayer is another term. For Christians, some functionally see prayer as a metric for measuring personal performance before God. How do you know if this is you? Well. When you found out that this sermon was about prayer, what did you feel? A little guilty? Maybe a little bit of shame? If so, this is you. Others treat prayer like it's a wish list. We we come to God like he's our personal genie and we say, dear God, give me this, give me that, help me here, help me there. We treat God like he's Santa Claus on Christmas Day. Which of you best describes you? Is prayer a ritual for the unsophisticated, an opportunity to practice mindfulness, a metric for personal performance, an opportunity to send God your wish list? With so many differing views on prayer, it's hard not to get lost wondering, when should we pray? Or what kind of God we're even praying to? Nehemiah helps us. He helps us by renewing our perspective on prayer. He shows us when we should pray, what kind of God we're praying to, and how to pray. In Nehemiah chapter one, he shows us when we should pray, what kind of God we're praying to, and how to pray. Those are our three points. First, when should we pray? For all of us, regardless of what view we might hold about prayer, typically when we pray, it's a moment of crises. When life feels Chaotic, no? What does Nehemiah have to say about this? Let's look at the text, verse one to three. Finding himself in Susa, Nehemiah receives news that people in Jerusalem, his fellow Jews, are devastated having never recovered from the aftermath of the previous Babylonian invasion. Uh, He writes in verse three, the remnant in the province who had uh, survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. When the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire, Jerusalem entered Persian control. 
The Jews had permission to rebuild under Persian regime, but after projects started, things ran into a glitch. Reconstruction got halted because of political opposition. In other words, Jerusalem remained in shambles. In verse 1, Nehemiah says that he was in Susa's citadel. This is a fortress located in Persia's capital, the cultural hub of an empire, a place where politics and power resided, where, where finance and commerce and business thrived. Put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes now. You're in a city with all the best resources and with all the money that could fix the world's problems. But you're locked down in your city. Your government won't let you through the gates. You want to help, but you can't. You want to go, but you're not allowed to. How would you feel? I imagine many of us know what this chaotic life feels like, stuck with circumstances and out of control, stalemated by life. What does Nehemiah do here? Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah prays. Like you and I, when hard times come, Nehemiah prays, and that's okay. The big question, though, is that the only time we should be praying, Nehemiah will suggest no. If we look to chapter 2, verse 4, we see Nehemiah record another moment where he's praying. This time, it's spontaneous. Confronted to speak to the king about what's going on in his personal life, Nehemiah writes, So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, right in the middle of a shift, with no more than a millisecond's pause, Nehemiah prays to God. If you were to read the rest of Nehemiah, you'll see 13 chapters, and in those 13 chapters, there's actually nine other prayers. And those prayers happen not just in times of crises, but in times of celebration in times of hope, and also times of labor. When should we pray? Nehemiah wants us to see that we can pray anytime and anywhere. Anytime and anywhere. Now, if you're a skeptic thinking this is laughable, thinking that Nehemiah is just another unsophisticated, hyper-religious man, let's talk about that for a second. Look at verse 11 here. He says, Now I was the cupbearer of the king, According to scholar Edwin Yamuchi, cupbearers not only tested the king's wine for poison, but were often tasked with other major duties assigned by the king. Well-educated in matters pertaining to wine, art, hospitality, and administration, they not only commanded the respect of the imperial courts, but they also had the personal trust of the world's greatest leader at the time. If the king was the president, the cupbearer was his chief of staff. Is prayer for the unsophisticated? Nehemiah, one of the most sophisticated men in history, seems to think otherwise as he prays. Prayers for anyone, at any time, and anywhere. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that we're not in control. We tried to get in control of this thing, but we're not in control. No matter how hard we try, how many lockdowns we have, how many vaccines we pump out, we're not in control. 
Prayer allows us to go to help from the one who is in control anytime and anywhere. And this is our first time, uh, first point, excuse me. When should we pray? Anytime and anywhere. Because God is always in control. This takes us to our second point. What kind of God are we praying to? Nehemiah shows us. He writes in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah says he prays to the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Embedded in the phrase great and awesome God is the gloriously rich history of Israel who sings of a God, a king. In Exodus 15, God is described as the God of heaven and earth, matchless in power, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. He is the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt and carried them through the wilderness. He is the cosmic monarch of monarchs the unreachable regal ruler who holds all imperial power in the palm of his hand, whose faintest whisper causes galaxies to explode into existence and others to vanish in an instant. The awesome God, great and awesome God that Nehemiah prays to, he says, in short, is an absolutely transcendent God. Transcendence is a technical term that describes the dignity and authority of God as one who possesses absolute power, majesty, might, and glory. As one theologian, Charles Spurgeon, put it best or well, this God is the God whom heaven obeys cheerfully, and the one whom hell trembles at his frown, the one whom the earth is constrained to yield worship, whether willingly or unwillingly. This is the God we pray to. This is the God we come before an absolutely transcendent God. Are you someone who prays to God like he's your personal genie? An assistant whose purpose is to fulfill your every desire? The Bible says this is God, the master of the universe, the one who stands above all created things. We should show him a little respect. God is not our personal assistant. He is the master. And if anything, we, we the creatures, are the servants. Nehemiah chapter 1 challenges us to reconsider how we see God and approach God. For God is an absolutely transcendent God. Now, I am not unaware. I am not unaware. Whenever we come face to face with the awesomeness of God... We run the risk of overlooking the fact that he is a graciously imminent God. For many of us, when we see God in his high and lofty place, we think he's a distant, cold, disinterested God, a cosmic tinker who builds things but then wants nothing to do with them afterwards. Is this the God we pray to? Nehemiah says, no. Let's read verse 5 again. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here we see a glimpse of the gracious imminence of God. Imminence is another technical term, and this term describes the stunning nearness of God as he, as he drives himself and he moves himself powerfully toward us in love. 
to help us appreciate the love that drives him near and into relationship with us, verse 5 talks about two types of love. The love that God gives us and the love that we give, in God, uh, give to God in return. And in the Hebrew, there's two different words used. And the purpose is to create a contrast, a distinction. The first love is God's love. The Hebrew word is chesed. In promising to be our God and we his people, God made a vow to love us with an everlasting love, a covenantal love, a never-ending love, never-changing love, a steadfast love that promises to love through thick and thin. As humans, our traditional marriage vows, the ones that you hear at the weddings, are designed to reflect and be a shadow of this divine love and reality. It's not that we copied God. It's not that God copied us, sorry, excuse me. It's that we copied him. In the presence of God, we say, I take you, and when I got married, I said to Hannah, my wife, I take you, Hannah, my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to honor, and to cherish till death do us part. Our covenantal love our covenantal declaration. This is what we're trying to go after in our marriages. This is what we're trying to mirror. This is as close as we can get humanly of depicting said love. It's a love that God promises to give to his people for all eternity. The other love is the love that we give to God. The word here in our text is ahav, ahav. It's a love that is emotional and fickle, that fluctuates with how we feel. And in our text, Nehemiah and God make this distinction between our two loves to show that knowing that we are going to give God a fickle love in return, God promises still to love us with a steadfast love. He promises to give us this unswerving loyalty forever. Think about that for a moment. Imagine the most powerful being in the universe saying to you, I want to love you. I want to be your friend. And I'm going to make you the object of my steadfast love. I know you will give me nothing in return. In fact, all you're going to do is just take, 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 and take. But I'm still going to love you. This is the Hesed love of God that drives him to come near to us. What are the implications? So what, we might ask. If we look at some of our views concerning prayer, for the one who's intrigued by prayer but doesn't want the religion that comes with it, you who selfishly want the benefits of God, but of intimately connecting with God, but you don't want God telling you how to live your life, I want to suggest to you something. If you saw such an imbalanced relationship at the human level, you wouldn't actually respect that kind of relationship. You wouldn't respect that kind of love. Here's what I mean. Imagine your close friend being in a relationship such that they were pouring out their hearts for their partner, but their partner did not respect that and mutually reflect that. They didn't return it. What would you say to your friend? How would you feel about the relationship? How would you feel about their partner? 
you'd say the relationship was toxic. You'd tell them to get out while you can. You'd say that their partner was a deadbeat and that your friend deserved a more respectable relationship, a more respectable partner. It's the same with God. It's the same with God because we know that respectable relationships are mutual. You and I might selfishly want relationships that bend completely in our favor, but if we're honest with ourselves, we see and we know that such imbalanced relationships are not respectable. In giving his commands to us, God tells us what delights him. It's like you and me telling one another what makes us feel loved in a friendship. And if you want to discover your authentic self, as many of these people who say they want the relationship with God but don't want the rules, as much as you think this is what you want, it's not in being a selfish friend that you get the friendship and the hope of your dreams. It's in being with God and being his good friend and seeing how that friendship changes you for the better. Your desire to connect with God is good. It's a good thing. But you need to remember that the best friendships in life bless both sides. The best friendships in life seek to please both sides. This is the type of friendship that you'd be able to respect. And this is the type of friendship that God's holding out to you today. A mutual friendship based on grace, rooted in love, and one that will last a lifetime and beyond. Christians, for those of you who functionally see prayer as a metric to measure personal performance before God, many of you sit here with guilt and shame because you've bought into the lie that by praying more or praying less, somehow God loves you more or less. I want you to know that's not true. That even when we fail to pray when we should, God still loves you deeply, profoundly, How do we know that? We know that because centuries before you and I were born, God showed his love for us once and for all by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one whom the angels called Emmanuel, God with us. Absolutely transcendent, Christ got off his majestic throne and came down to earth, graciously imminent, near. He walked with us, he dined among us, and then he died for us. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, shortly before Jesus' death, Jesus had a meal with his friends. And sitting across from him, he took up a cup. He took up a cup, a cup that symbolized their friendship. And he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink from it, all of you. And shortly after, just hours, hours before his death on the cross, Jesus knelt in a garden and praying to God, he said, take this cup from me. Referring to another cup. This was the cup of God's wrath reserved for unfaithful friends like you and me because God is holy. Jesus was talking about the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for us. A cup that existed because God is holy and holiness demands absolute perfection and we know we're not. 
and God knows we're not, but a cup that nonetheless still had to be dealt with. Who dealt with it? Three times Jesus pleaded, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, he said. And one more time, take this cup. What was God's response? Do you hear that? It was silence. Divine silence. Someone had to take our tab. If we were to be friends with God, someone had to drink the cup. And God sent his son to drink that cup. The cupbearer's job was to drink the poison in order to save the king, a servant's life or a king's life. Jesus, the high king of heaven, looking into a cup of fiery poison, didn't pass it over to us, but rather in a scandalous act of mercy, he drank the cup for us, a king's life for a servant's life, a king's life for your life. so that we might never have to wonder about God's love for us. Jesus gave it all up for us. Greater love has no one than this, John 15, 13 says, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is our God. This is our King. And this is our friend, Jesus Christ, absolutely transcendent, yet graciously imminent. We answer the question, when should we pray? What kind of God we're praying to? Now we look to how to pray, and this is our final point. By way of application, Nehemiah gives us a lot of help regarding how we can pray. When we pray, we can start by pouring out our hearts. Look at verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Excuse me. He writes, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, he writes. Wailing before God, weeping before God, Nehemiah pours out his heart. And this is important for us to get because far too often we try to hide our emotions from God. We try to hold back words from God. We're a Presbyterian church. We love order. We love structure. But Nehemiah shows us that even in the order and even in the structure, we can still pour out our hearts thinking that prayer has to look a certain way, sound a certain way, that we have to hold certain postures, take a certain tone that will please God, Nehemiah shows us, no. There is value in structure. There is value in order. But don't fall into the trap that you have to hold back from God. Because God is an absolutely transcendent God. The weight of the universe rests on his shoulders, and he doesn't even break a sweat. He can handle your rawest emotions, whatever it may be. So pour out your heart. If it's anger, give it to God. If it's sorrow, pour it out to God. Give him your heart. In pouring out your heart, he also teaches us, though, to pour it out humbly. Pour it out humbly. Verse 6 and 7, we see Nehemiah's humility in his confession of sin. When he prays, Nehemiah doesn't just see himself as better, as, uh, better than others. Rather, he recognizes that he's a recipient of grace. 
God didn't become Nehemiah's friend because he saw anything special in Nehemiah. God became Nehemiah's friend because God's that kind of God, a graciously loving, imminent God. And this humility changes us in a couple of ways. It shatters all pretense and moves us to pray not just for our own welfare, but the welfare of those around us. See how Nehemiah prays, not just confessing his own sins, but the sins of the people. When we pray, we not only pour out our hearts, but we pour it out humbly. In addition to humility, Nehemiah also shows us that we should pray confidently. Look at verse 8. Remember the word, he says, that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah prays confidently. Thomas Manton, an English Puritan, once said to his church, one good way to get the comfort of God is to plead the promises of God in prayer. Show him his handwriting. God is tender to his own word. If God said he'll do something, show it to him because he'll honor it. This means you'll have to familiarize yourself with God's word. If you need a place to start, I encourage you to start with the Psalms. Here we have countless examples of people pouring out their hearts humbly, but also confidently as they plead the promises of God. What else do we see here? Nehemiah teaches us to pray patiently. Um, Nehemiah is called the son of Hakaliah in chapter 1, verse 1. Hakaliah, his family name, means one who waits on the Lord. One who waits on the Lord. And Nehemiah waits, actually, quite a long time before he sees God move, five months to be exact, uh, praying in the month of Kislev. That's in November to December-ish. And continue to pray until the month of Nisan, as we see in chapter 2. That's April to kind of May-ish. Between chapter 1 and 2, Nehemiah had to wait for months before he saw God answer his prayer. He had to pray patiently. He poured out his heart with both humility and confidence, but also with patience. And so we should too. The last thing we see is that we pray corporately. For many of us, when we pray, we think that prayer is a solo adventure. Nehemiah also wants us to see But that's not necessarily the case. Though verse 1 of chapter 1 reads like Nehemiah's alone, verse 11 tells us that he might not actually be alone. Let's read verse 11. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, servant, singular, and to the prayer of your servants, plural, who delight to fear your name, Nehemiah prays. Though Nehemiah records his own personal, individual prayer experience, some scholars believe that there were others who have also heard the report with Nehemiah. And though Nehemiah mentions himself in the singular, he also mentions the plural because there could be, and scholars are convinced, that there are people around him joining him in prayer as they pour out their hearts humbly, patiently, and confidently Nehemiah shows us that we can pray corporately. This week, we have an opportunity to do this together, church. On Tuesday, our church is hosting a prayer night that will be live-streamed for us. If you're in a small group, as the director for small groups, I've asked the the small group leaders, and many of them are on board, we're going to take our GG time, our small group time, to pray together, to watch the live stream together, 
And if you can't meet during the Tuesday, we're going to keep the link up so that you can watch the recording on the Wednesday or the Thursday or the Saturday so that you can pray corporately. If you're new to our church and you're not part of a small group, I invite you to register online to join one of the prayer groups that will be happening on Tuesday so that you can pray, not just individually, but corporately. Because God created us not just to walk by ourselves, but to walk with others. When God redeemed us, he didn't just redeem one person. He redeemed many. And as one body made up of many parts, We are called to walk with God, not just individually, but corporately. So how do we pray? By corporately pouring out our hearts with humility, confidence, and patience. As we conclude our time together, Nehemiah has taught us much about prayer, showing us that we can pray anytime and anywhere to an absolutely transcendent and graciously imminent God who's always in control. We can pray together by pouring out our hearts with humility, confidence, and patience together. Let's pray. God, we pray right now that you would help us to pray. Help us to be a people who pray. Help us to be a people like Nehemiah who pray before we act, who pray in good times and in bad times, who pray in certain times and uncertain times. Help us, God, to be a people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Typically around this time, uh, at this time, we would do a Q&A, uh, but today, after talking about it with Dan McDonald, our senior pastor, and some of the other pastors on our team, we agreed that it is more appropriate that we spend some extra time in prayer, and I'd like to lead us in just that. After most sermons, we have a prayer reflection, and I'd like to turn your attention to that prayer of reflection first. And I want to invite you to not just make this your own words, but make this a word that you pray with everyone. Pray this not just for yourselves, but pray this for the people around you. If you're at home, pray this for the people that you know in your small groups, in your families, in your circle of friends. Let's pray this prayer of reflection. Lord of heaven, we thank you that your ears are attentive and your eyes are always open to our prayers because of Jesus Christ. Grant us the diligence and grace to confess our sins, to affirm your many mercies, and to intercede for the good of the world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The second prayer that I want to lead us through is a prayer for those searching for truth. For those of you who are Christian, this is your opportunity to not just invite God to continue to reveal the truth of the gospel to you, but to also reveal the truth of the gospel to those who don't know him, those who might want to connect with God, but might not know him yet. For those of you who are investigating the faith, this prayer is a prayer for you to personally ask God to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to perceive and to see him to ask him to wrap, wrap you in his divine love so that you might be able to find the truth that your heart really longs for. We're going to pray this prayer together, and then I'm going to give you a moment of silence to pray by yourselves. Please join me in the prayer for those searching for truth. Lord Jesus, you claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. 
Grant that we might be undaunted by the cost of following you as we consider the reasons for doing so. If what you claim is true, please guide us, teach us, and open us up to the reality of who you are. Give us an understanding of you that is coherent, convincing, and that leads, you, leads to the life you promise. Amen. Please take a moment to silently pray this for yourself and for your friends. Amen. The last round of prayer is a prayer of belief. This prayer, I don't know if you've noticed this before, has always been at the bottom of our church bulletin. And for many of us, we pass over this prayer of belief. But we put this prayer of belief for those of you who have thought about God, who have been chasing after God, investigating the faith this prayer is for you. If you're in a place right now where you want to begin a relationship with God and accept his covenant love for you. For those of you who are Christians, likewise, we've prayed this prayer before. And as we pray, like Nehemiah, we have the opportunity to confess this and pray this over our friends, pray this over our families, and pray this over the people who want to accept God and into their life. So please, if this is you, consider making these your very own words. Please join me in the prayer of belief. Lord Jesus Christ, we admit that we are weaker and more sinful than we ever dared admit, but through you we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We thank you for paying our debt on the cross, taking what we deserved in order to offer us complete forgiveness. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, we turn from our sins and receive you as our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. I now ask the worship team to lead us in the song of reflection.